Thanks for listening to this edition of the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. Here we examine what enables true creativity, how to convert ideas into innovation, and seek out what ignites enterprise-wide growth. I'm your host, entrepreneur, strategist, and muser of metacognition, David Peterson. Today, I have the opportunity of introducing an interview I did with Bina Kim, president and co-founder at Vested Communications. I think you'll find it fascinating. Take a listen. Well, we're so excited today to have Ms. Bina Kim, president and co-founder of Vested Communications on the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. Bina, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. I'm super excited. Awesome. Awesome. Well, listen, you know, give our IDG podcast listeners just that big 20,000 foot overview of, of Bina Kim. Who, who are you? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, without having a total existential crisis, uh, I'll do my best. So I'm the president and co-founder of an agency called Vested. We're an integrated uh, marketing communications firm focused on financial services and fintech. So excited to be talking to, to you today. Uh, my background is actually in finance. I started my career in finance at a at a firm you might be familiar with, Merrill Lynch. And Mm -hmm. then I've really evolved my career into helping brands across finance and fintech really look at how they can use marketing and communications techniques to reach reach different audiences. And I'm a mother of three. I'm super passionate about issues like diversity and and women and leadership, which I know we're probably going to delve into today. So uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And, and of course, we're recording this at a time when uh, m- most of us are all still working from home. I know you're based in uh, New York City. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm just outside New York City. Our offices are in New York, but I live in Jersey City. And so in the background, as we go through here, I think we hear <laughs> I think we hear some little Kims. You'll probably so will, yeah. That's, that's going to be uh, the great backdrop for our, for our whole conversation. So everybody gets it. Everybody understands. Yeah, exactly. Now you said something and I I have a little bit of knowledge of of PR and and marketing and so forth. But when when you talk about an integrated PR marketing and communications firm, maybe just again, what what does that really mean as opposed to some organization that's purely PR, purely? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of a fancy way of saying that what we do is a lot of different things. So when you think about marketing, you might think of advertising, you might think of social media, content, um, you know, digital, print marketing, sponsorships, etc. And the way I think we look at the world is that if you really want to solve a problem, so for a financial services firm, it could be launching a new product, or they've got a brand challenge, or they want to reach new demographics, we really look at it as okay, well, what's the ideal mix? What are the different marketing and communications tools and channels that we can leverage to really solve that business problem? Because to be honest, if, you know, and this isn't to speak ill of any agency out there, I think we all do specialize in different ways. I think if you're a PR only agency, if you're an ad advertising only agency, when a client comes to you with a problem, really the only solution you can offer them is, well, I do PR, so I'm going to tell you PR is the answer. We want it to be channel agnostic because we hoped that by being integrated, that we'll really be able to solve those business problems much more effectively, which I think we're doing today. Very nice. And so I think that would that sort of leads in. 
into my next question, which is if you if you just think about the PR, you know, this integrated PR and marketing field, think about what you do and kind of setting aside the financial services vertical just for a second. And just thinking about what's going on now with PR and marketing in general. Obviously, we live in a time when social media is a key driver of instant, moment by moment information uh, that's going out there. And so the days when you had, you know, you, you planned for and did a print this or a, a TV ad that or some kind of public rollout or, or some type of public relations thing, now everything just seems to be so instant. What what do you really see as the innovation? What What is really happening that's dramatically changing as you evaluate your role in PR and marketing and this whole process of how things have evolved even just over the past, you know, three, five, eight years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to your point, it's it's not just a finance only trend. I think we as consumers and individuals, we experience this on a daily basis, right? You open up Netflix and what you might see when you open up Netflix is probably different than what I might see when uh, I open up right, my Netflix right. account or, or someone else. And so in our daily experiences, we've gotten really used to personalization that my Netflix knows me better than probably a lot of people do, or my Amazon account does. Right. And that speaks to how big brands are using data-driven insights to serve up products, content, services that really tailor to what I need because of what they know about me. And I think whether it's financial services or others, I think the big challenge and the opportunity for companies is how do you tap that kind of data-driven technology and insight to serve up tailored services and products that meet customers where they are at the time that they need it to drive stronger purchasing behaviors. And so that way, in many ways, I think it's a great opportunity. So and we, I think, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of conversation about data sure. right, and data privacy. Right. At the same time, I think we as consumers have gotten really used to the power of that data personalization right. when it comes to our daily lives. Exactly. And so would it be fair to say that in the past, the distant past, you know, you you would have have had a very blanket, you know, you you put a, a newspaper ad or a billboard or, or or even a TV commercial, you're just blasting that out, you know, without really any targeted focus, and then things started getting more and more targeted. But now you're getting highly individualized based on individual preferences and this level of engagement that says how David and how Bina and Mark and Sue and Bill and everyone else consumes information from the same entity now becomes very personalized. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah I think I think we experience we've almost gotten so accustomed to it that we've we've probably stopped noticing to be honest, yeah. but yeah. you know, I think people talk about how, you know, sometimes disturbed they are when they open up Instagram for example and they're scrolling around and they see an ad and they go Oh my God, I was literally just talking about camping. Right. And now I'm saying ads about camping gear. Right. Like, how is that possible? Right. And, you know, to be honest, I think there is a lot of data collection that is happening. And people do have mixed feelings about that data collection. And is my phone always listening to me? Is Siri always on? Mm -hmm. Is my Alexa always on? But on the flip side, it does mean that brands, advertisers, you know, firms get to know more about their customers when their customers allow it. And it hopefully allows people to build better products and services because to be honest, financial services certainly should not be one size fits all. I hope the manufacturers don't create one size fits all products. I think people are diverse and we need a diverse range of products. And I think that evolution, the digitization of services, I think is really allowing for that personalization. Sure. sure. And and I think I think that we can all 
we can all agree that there are benefits to things being customized for us, but we want to know that those companies that are harvesting that data, that are listening, are doing so in a way that's paternalistically in our best interest, right? They, they can steer us to certain things, choice architecture, and we just want to know that they're doing that with the best intentions in heart and not some, you know, in, in nefarious motive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, it's, you know, this is going to be an ongoing, you know, evolution for the industry and regulations will continue to evolve in terms of what data can be collected. And if data is going to be collected, you know, should that be monetized on behalf of the consumer? There's right. lots of conversations about that happening. Yep. I think even in aggregate, aggregate, you know, when we sign our terms and conditions and, you know, when we agree to certain services, there is language in there about what, you know, the, the service or brand that you're interacting with is collecting on your behalf. And I do think that there are benefits to some of that data collection because I, as a consumer, do benefit. Because I like the fact that when I open up my Netflix account, there's stuff there that I want to watch, right? right? Um, and so I think there's, you know, whether it's your seamless account or Uber predicting where you're probably going to want to go or your Gmail even thinking about, you're probably going to want right. to say this. I think we experience that in ways that are valuable, but we certainly don't want data collection to ever infringe upon our privacy in ways that we don't agree with or make exactly. us deeply uncomfortable. So looking ahead, going the other way, three, five, eight years from now, do you see this just continuing to sort of accelerate and, and be honed and refined? Or do you see some things on the horizon that might be, you know, literally innovative breakthroughs in how uh, PR and communications is handled completely differently from how we think about it today? You know, it's hard. You know, I'm not a futurist. So it's hard for me to <laughs> totally pinpoint exactly where we're going. I think what's interesting about how technology is evolving and the role that marketing and communications can play. And I think, you know, if you look at the current crisis that we're in and us being entirely remote, I think it's thrown, you know, a greater spotlight on how we interact, right? How we interact to purchase things, right? If you can no longer go into a store, right? Then there's e-commerce. You go right. online to purchase something. Financial services, same way. I can't walk into my branch necessarily. So what am I going to do? And so in many ways, I think brands are rethinking that customer interaction and rethinking the physicality of that. And, and I'm sure, you know, you've heard about wearables and, yep. you know, Google Glass, et cetera. Um, we all, you know, more people have, you know, intelligent devices that they might be wearing, like an Apple Watch. Um, we have Alexas embedded in our home. We talk a lot about smart cars and smart homes. And so all around us, even in our physical interactions, when we go into a branch, you know, there will be more intelligence being gathered in ways that will allow the store, the bank branch, the financial services institution, the restaurant that you're going to, to be able to really push something to you at the time that you want it and that you need it. I, I look at it as an opportunity not for brands to be just shoving things down your throat, but rather that, you know, at the moment that you need something, you walk into a store, um, and I'm sure, you know, you've read about, you know, the Amazon stores, et cetera. You mm -hmm. walk into a store, maybe there's no physical human being there. And you go in and you take something off the shelf, you put it in your bag and you walk out. 
And that goes into, you know, your Amazon account and your Amazon account already knows a lot about what you tend to buy, Mm -hmm. what you need. You prefer these type of eggs over that. I actually think that our physical interactions are going to greatly improve in ways that will hopefully promote both safety in this type of new environment, right? Where um, we're more conscious of health and safety, but also in ways that I think will improve our experiences at a store, at a bank, um, wherever it might be. So I think there's so much opportunity and I can't quite predict when or exactly (laughs) what that's going to look like, but that's my hope. So I don't know if you remember, it's been uh, several years ago, many years ago, actually, there was a Tom Cruise movie called Minority Report where they were predicting crime. And, And of course, there's the scene where he's got the other guy, he's had his eyes replaced, right? So he's walking through the store and uh, and the, you hear an uh, automated voice like, hey, Mr. Yamaguchi, did you, how did you like those nose pants? You know, the guy. And so, you know, it, you know, certainly I don't think that we have that situation, but it's not hard. It's not hard to imagine that in three years or five years or an eight-year time frame that we could have something like that. Yeah. We're, we're, we're recognized, we're facial recognition, what, in whatever way we're recognized just by our proximity and we're offered up choices or, or things are presented to us again, hopefully in a paternalistic, we think this would be good for you FYI way. Yeah, exactly. I think crossing the digital and physical divide is going to be something that is increasingly going to happen. And and I did have a follow-up question on the social media part. And and I know this this one question could wind up being a whole podcast by itself, but I am interested uh, because I think it's timely from a, you know, current events kind of standpoint. One person, one person's tweet offering up uh, some type of positive, what they what they believe to be a positive message is another person's offense. So mm-hmm. completely separating how and why any of all of that happens. What, how do you advise companies and, you know, uh, executives or, 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 you know, how do you advise your clients about how and when tweeting or, or, or Facebook or, you know, really any kind of, of social media message and how is somebody supposed to gauge what sentiment might be about something that literally changes in some cases minute by minute throughout the day. Mm. Yeah. And to your point, I think social media is such a powerful channel in, in so many ways. And I think, you know, the point that you made about, you know, it, it, it can be meant positively, but be taken in the wrong way. And, and what I always advise to clients is you have to Embrace social media for what it is. You are speaking directly, very directly to the greater public and your audience in a way that's instant. It's quickly consumed, so people will see it right away and reacted to. And I think it has tremendous benefits for that reason. But I always say, if you want to be on social media, you do have to be authentic. You have to be engaged. It is not just a push out tool because it's not just a place where you dump your corporate messaging and see if you know people care it is a two-way street and it is a way to listen to Mm -hmm. how customers think and feel it is actually a great way to better tap into the mindsets and the emotions of the world at large but also your core consumer set and it means that what you get back is not always going to be sunshine and rainbows Mm -hmm. you know sometimes it's going to be unhappy i mean i'm sure you've seen this with You know, airlines, for example, every time there's an airline incident, consumers go straight to social media 
to see how did they respond? What did they say? And mm-hmm. oftentimes I've, you know, I've heard many brands say that in some ways, customer service is a huge part of their social media channels now that they're always monitoring, trying to respond to customer requests and problems and solve problem solving as quickly as they can. I think that that is a very powerful and very important um, channel. But I always say you have to know what social media is. It is not just an amplification tool for yourself. It is a way to connect like a direct pipeline into your customer. And you have to treat it with that kind of respect and that kind of importance. It's not just a marketing tool. And I think it's always really important that whenever brands get into social media, that they really understand that. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. I I do want to pivot now and talk a little bit more about the financial services vertical. Uh, You mentioned in your intro that your firm has at least a uh, emphasis on that financial services marketplace. These organizations, be it a financial institution or other, you know, all of the other financial services types of company, brokerage, mortgage, you know, uh, at all, you know, they're they're going through a tremendous cycle of, of change, right? Pivoting to new services and dealing with physical branches that are closed and just a whole ton of things. How is the the innovative, you know, marketing and communication services such as your firm provides, how is that playing a role in transformation? How are you advising your financial services customers about the way that they're transforming their business? Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of funny because, you know, in some ways, you know, we think about these highly technology forward products and services, and then sometimes the marketing might actually feel sort of far behind that and we're marketing digital services in traditional ways. And I think the work that we're doing is actually trying to help our financial services clients embrace a lot of the new and amazing channels that other consumer technology brands are are using. And of course, there are lots of variables at play. Obviously, financial services is a more regulated industry. And so you always want to proceed with caution. Um, But I think what's exciting about digital marketing, so whether you look at social or paid digital techniques, is goes to the earlier point about um, being able to provide tailored messages to the populations that need these services at the time that they want them. And I think digitally driven, data driven marketing and communications means that we're able to provide products and services in intelligent ways and also learn, you know, did this work? Do people care? Are people buying? Can we um, actually evolve our marketing campaign. I think that's actually the beautiful thing about marketing today for financial services companies is you can pivot, test, and learn, use that data-driven insight to better create campaigns and evolve them so that they work. And I'm sure every you know marketer and communicator has been in this boat before to to justify the big marketing budget and right. Having someone turn around, whether it's the CFO or CEO, go, okay, you spent X, you know, million dollars. What did you do? You know, how did you impact the bottom line? Well, I think the advent of, you know, ongoing innovations in MarTech and ad tech and PR tech is actually making that job a lot easier, which I think is great. It means we're showing more strategically how marketing is impacting the business and the bottom line. Well, I want to run this scenario by you because I'm fascinated by uh, by this conversation. I get a chance to speak at industry conferences from time to time. I teach at the Graduate School of Banking for the University of Colorado. I talk about this this line, this data, you're acquiring data, you are then trying to use that in some type of 
paternalistic, altruistic way. And there's a, a line, and I don't know how to define it any other way, but by using the highly technical term of creepy, right? So <laughs> you, you can do whatever you want to with this data right up to this point. And then after that point, okay, now you're getting creepy. So let me just throw a scenario on you, right? Yeah. So I, I, I talk to bankers and I tell them, you should have a concierge, a person that, that literally is at the front of the area where people are coming in. And for the vast majority of people coming in who are customers, they'll have a cell phone, they'll have that cell phone turned on for location services. So before they ever walk in, you know that Bina Kim is walking into the branch. And so right. and so they can have a tablet there and they can have information about, uh, you know, a, a nice dashboard of all of Bina Kim's accounts. And they can know that Bina Kim had clicked on three days ago while she was doing online banking. She had clicked on an ad for a, a platinum uh, MasterCard, but didn't actually convert and go to uh, apply for that card. And so, you know, so Bina walks in and, and this concierge, you know, let's say it's me and they, and I say, Bina, so glad that you're, you're here in the bank. And you're like, wow, I'm impressed. You know, he remembers who I am or whatever else he goes. Um, Hey, I, what, uh, what do you, what, can, you know, can we help you today? And, and by the way, can we, um, I noticed that you had a chance to take a look at our, our platinum ask. Are there questions we can answer for you about that? Or can we get that, you know, get that application done for you today at some point in that? And, and I'm just throwing that out as, a, as an example, because uh, I have other crazy ideas, Bina. I think that every <laughs> customer, I think Bina should have her own walk-in music, right? Because I know your phone's coming in, so you should have just like a baseball pitcher. There should be over the, in the PA, a cool music thing that you've selected that lets everyone know that Bina's in the bank. And it's like, you know, could be some, you know, outstanding, really super cool K-pop, who knows what kind of song, but boom, you're in the building and everybody knows. But how do you gauge from a PR and marketing standpoint how do you figure that creepy line? Yeah, I, you know, it's only creepy if it's unwanted. And, um, which, which is know, back always, to an individual, right? So now it's, it is. It Be- is. Bina may think it's creepy, but, but Joe or, or Sue may be fine with it. Right, yeah. exactly. And I think when is, when do you find that not creepy, right? <laughs> when is it that, you know, my Netflix knowing so much about me mm-hmm. or my Amazon account thinking, oh, like, okay, you might be interested in these purchases. When is it not creepy is when I find right. it helpful, you know? And I think that's going to be a difficult but not impossible problem for people to solve, yeah. which is if I'm walking into the bank branch and based on my account and my geotargeting, you already know I've, I had, you know, chatted with a customer service rep about a problem I'm having with my account. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to go to the branch. But the moment I walk in, if the person who's standing there goes, I realize, Ms. Kim, that you've been having problems with your, you know, mortgage payment. I've actually already made a mortgage specialist available to you. They're ready to talk to you right now. I would find that incredibly helpful, right? Because I don't need to waste time trying to speak to multiple people. I don't have to stand in line. That's when I find it valuable, right? If if that data is being used where it feels like it's self-serving for the brand, meaning I walk into the branch and they go, I noticed you clicked on an ad about a credit card. Can I talk to you about this new credit card? I <laughs> right. might say, well, I clicked on it, but I wasn't really interested, right? right? So don't just try and sell me something. Right. And it's, it's, a, it's a tough line to balance, but I think the more we can wield that data to solve problems for our customers and then demonstrate added value, I think that's when customers find that most helpful. And I'm with you. I think I think the, I think you've helped crystallize that. If if it's paternalistic, if it's something that is in 
be in his best interest, i.e., I can quickly help you get the, the help you need to solve right. your mortgage uh, question, then there's there's no, you're not even close to the to the creepy line. But, right. when, but when you start trying to sell me other things, now I might take I might take offense to that. And, and I think about your example of Netflix, and I know that there's an algorithm that says if David watched this show and this show and this show based on our algorithm, he might like that show. And, and I understand how that works, and so I don't see that as creepy. However, if, to use your earlier example, if I had been talking to somebody about potentially being interested in watching the new show Space Force, or even worse, if I was talking to somebody about Space Force, meaning the new branch of government, and then mm-hmm. Netflix all of a sudden said, hey, we think you're interested in Space Force, which is a new program, a parody program they have on Netflix. Right. Uh, parody, right. Now, all of a sudden, I'm kind of like, wait a second. Wait, wait, right? So somehow it's, and this is why it's, I, I just have a great I don't know, a great feeling of appreciation or almost, uh, holy cow, how do you do this for your profession? Because it's so individualized. You can't tell a client, if you do these things, it will be well-received. You can you can say, if you do these things, it's going to be a problem. I, I think that's probably more clear, it seems to me. But some things are so individualized that it's like, well, uh, I don't think it's going to be a problem for everybody, but we don't know if it's going to be a problem for some people. Yeah, and I think the beauty of technology and algorithms and data is that we as human beings don't necessarily have to do all the hard work of making the decision. And what I mean by that is it's a two-way street, right? It's like social media. It's, you know, if I put something out there and people are responding and they like it, then I know it's working, right? I don't have to sit in a conference room with a whole marketing team and go, what do you guys think? Do you think Mm -hmm. we should do this? Do we think our our customers are going to respond? We're letting the customers tell us if it's working. And I think that is the wonderful thing about technology today is the amount of insight gathering, feedback gathering, that by the time we're like rolling something new out, we've already sort of tested, learned, we've honed it to such perfection that we know for Mm -hmm. the most part it is going to work. Yes, sure. Can humans get in the way and kind of mess it up? That can always happen. But today, you know, compared to let's say 20 years ago, even, I think our ability to market effectively has gone up in a huge way. Thanks to, you know, being able to leverage AI driven analysis because it isn't a human being that's sitting inside of your tv going you know gee i think you know they're gonna gonna, you know they watch this i think they're gonna like this it's based on a lot of intelligence gathering and algorithmic analysis to go the there's 95 percent likely that if you watch this show you're probably also going to like this other show and i think in some ways financial services is going to be similar Exactly. And now I've said and written for years that when I talk about innovation from an industry perspective, that financial institutions, financial services, generally speaking, has really not been that focused on innovation. And and I'm not suggesting that they haven't made advancements. Clearly, in the current scenario we're in right now, where a lot of branches are closed, it's really nice that all of these financial institutions, even little small community ones, have electronic banking options and people can, you know, get, get access to 
their accounts. And, and quite frankly, it's showing, I think, a lot of banks that uh, the branches really aren't necessary for any kind of transactions whatsoever. But how do you see, and I realize I'm asking you to dish on your, your industry here, so I, I get it that your, <laughs> your comments will be measured, but do you see that financial institutions would are taking on this mantle of innovation, that they're saying to themselves, we can't go back to banking as it was which is sort of really mired in more of a 1970s model of how services are provided, build a big building and you, you got to issue a question, you come in here, you know, versus being more where the, where the customers are. What, what do you see happening, generally speaking, with innovation as it relates to financial services? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, to be, to be sympathetic to the financial services industry, I think innovation has been, has been happening. I think sometimes it's not at the surface level. You know, sometimes that transformation is happening behind the scenes, deep within an institution in ways that are probably expensive, take a long time, and ultimately will, will transform the institution in a big way. But we might not see it, right? Not in the same way that, a, you know, that Apple's going to roll out the latest edition of the iPhone and you're going to marvel at how much smaller and faster it is. Like finance, unfortunately, doesn't get to benefit from that same kind of, uh, same kind of opportunity. Now, I think that innovation is often driven by necessity. And I think that, you know, for better or for worse, the the rise of quote unquote fintech, you know, so when, you know, financial technology has always existed. But when you think about fintech, right, you think about, you know, Betterment and Stash and Acorns and Robinhood and, you know, even Goldman Sachs, you know, launched Marcus, et cetera. I think the rise of so, you know, the so-called fintech challengers have really forced banks to think about not only what they're doing, but how they talk about it, how they present themselves as innovators, because no longer can that innovation sort of remain in the back office, in the domain of the IT department, and they're tooling away doing this multi-year digital transformation process. Now, financial services brands have to talk about it and go, this is what we're doing. This is how we're trying to change the experience for our consumers. This is how we're investing in the branch. This is how we're investing in online banking. In some ways, I think it forced a much more frequent uh, conversation about that innovation. So I think both from an actual, you know, innovation standpoint, I do think financial services firms are digitizing more, uh, acquiring firms that bring that innovation into the firm, but also they're talking about it more. And I, I think, to be honest, I think we've seen as an agency more and more mandates from, you know, quote unquote, traditional financial services brands to help them bring that innovation into the spotlight, which has already been going on for Excellent. some time. Excellent. Let me uh, let me pivot here and ask you a couple questions about the whole, I'm really curious about how the in the current environment, the, the CMO, the chief marketing officer of, mm. of a typical organization is viewed with uh, within. And years and years ago, I was actually in charge of marketing for, uh, for a fintech firm, a name, a name that you would recognize for sure. And I don't think, when I think about my interactions with the CEO, talking about marketing, I don't really think the CEO ever really saw marketing as in, in the same light as as he would the head of sales, the head of development. You know, words, it, it, there didn't seem to be this idea of the understanding of how strategic a proper marketing would be in, in that role. What, how do you see the CMO, generally speaking, not just financial services, but across the board, and how integral or how they're viewed by the rest of the C-suite? 
Yeah, I think in some ways that really does depend on the company. And there, there is a big difference typically in how a B2B CMO might be viewed versus a B2C CMO. And the reason why I say that is if you're the CMO of a B2C company, how you market product services can impact actually how consumers purchase, right? If you are marketing cereal, for example, you know, how that cereal gets marketed will probably have a direct impact on how many people are going out to purchase that cereal. If you're talking about a B2B banking technology product, there's probably greater skepticism that marketing is going to have as much of a direct impact mm-hmm. as your sales team who's going out, working their networks, going to conferences, having conversations, also because the sales cycle tends to be quite quite long. So you have to sort of think about the B2B CMO and the B2C CMO differently. Because I do find that in sort of more B2C financial services organizations, the CMO does play a much stronger role, oftentimes more at the C-suite, less or so in the B2B environment. But that's not to say that that's sort of, you know, sure. a complete, you know, line in the sand or anything. But it is important to think of those two things differently. I do think that the rise of MarTech and technology and for the CMO or the CCO to be able to use that technology to go back to the C-suite and go, this is what we invested in, and this is what I did to the bottom line, is allowing more CMOs and CCOs to have a more business-level conversation around that table. And, and specifically to that point, that, that's been the age-old problem, is trying to quantify the effort of marketing and the money spent back to some specific tangible outcome. Th- this number of sales, and you know, you hear all of this you know, marketing, and somebody buys after the, whatever, 151st touch point, whatever. So of course, the CEO doesn't want to pay for the 150, they just want to pay for the 151st. It's an extreme example, I know. But how, what, are the, what are the new ways that CMOs are going to the C-suite or going to the CEO or the CFO and saying, here's how we measure now our impact. Yeah, I mean, there are hundreds, if not thousands of (laughs) different technology platforms that CMOs and CCOs have at their disposal. So many that I'm I'm not even going to get into, you know, the merits of, of one over the other. But what I do think it's providing is, a much greater tracing ability to go from this maybe demographic, this firm first had a touch point with us at this conference, at this email, this touch point that the marketing team created. And what happened was that this person came in and interacted with us at these different touch points. And then what we did was we created a marketing qualified lead and we handed it over to the sales team and the sales team worked that lead for six months, 12 months, and then it converted into a multi-million dollar contract for the organization. I don't know that that was quite as possible 20 years ago Mm -hmm. when, you know, I know everybody's fending for their turf and the sales team would go, well, that was my lead. I knew Bob from way back when. I think now, thanks to CRM technologies and others, I think marketing and sales have been able to much more closely partner in ways that allow both, both sides of the equation show this is what marketing did this is what sales did and this is how we this is how we drove revenue so i do think there are so many different technology platforms and to be honest it's only getting better um every day that goes by i find new technologies emerging more firms you know merging to be honest um through m a activity mm-hmm. and i think we're getting better and more 
closely aligned to this perfect end state in which we'll be able to track everything. I don't think we're 100% there yet, but we're certainly getting closer. And, you know, I was doing a little research in advance of our conversation today, and I found multiple studies that recent, that in, in talking about 2018, 2019 data, that showed that women were underrepresented as, as CMOs, that that highest level of, of marketing. And yet I found a, another, a completely different study. I want to say, let's see, marketing charts. And again, I have no idea whether that's a big time company or two, you know, two guys in a closet. But they had data that showed that in the first half of 2019, that women were, were now starting to take those CMO jobs in a higher rate than what had previously. As, as you see the market right now, and you think about this CMO role, where do women stand as far as capturing and, and commanding those uh, chief marketing officer positions? Yeah. And, you know, there are a lot of different studies. I think I read a a recent Russell Reynolds report that actually said that women are making more gains in the CMO role. Um, that's actually at an all time high than, than previously, which I think is, which I think is great news. And, you know, honestly, my hope is that for the CMO function in particular, that there'll be better representation. And, and I don't mean just in gender. I think, you know, I think about ethnicity, I think about sexual preference, I think about all the different ways in which we can bring, you know, more diverse perspective into the CMO function. And and the reason why is, you know, the CMOs of brands are really driving what they say, how they say it, to whom they're saying these things. And for finance in particular, I think, you know, our desire is that finance can be more inclusive because finance is so critically important to wealth creation and closing the wealth gap, whether it's across gender lines, it's across race lines, et cetera. I think our ability to close the wealth gap is going to be really important for our future. And I think in order to do that, I think us being able to show here, these are products and services. Here's how we can make them feel more inclusive and accessible by a wider demographic. We can only do that if our CMOs across all these different financial services brands and beyond are better representative of our world. And I think that, of course, includes more women in the roles, but I also think just greater diversity in, in these roles is really important. And I do hope that more brands are focused on that. And to your point, I think, unfortunately, we're still in an environment where if uh, if a woman is hired today as the CMO of a, of a mid-sized company, there's a pretty good bet that there's four to six other sort of C-suite uh, positions. And the vast majority of those will probably be men. So just from a strategic standpoint, how do you, how would you advise uh, somebody who's coming into that role who wants to be seen as a strategic, you know, a really key strategic, but maybe doesn't feel like they're treated as an equal in the C-suite? What kind of advice do we have for those women who who are like, no, I, I have an important role to play in this organization and what I do is strategic. Here's how I'm going to go about showing everybody that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think... You know, generally, I think there's probably a broader philosophy here that our boardrooms and our leadership teams need to be more represented, period, right? So aside from if you take the CMO function aside here for a second, I think even now, if we think about the the social movement that's happening in our country today, I think greater diversity around the boardroom table will mean that no longer will you know, the one woman in the room has to fight to be to be heard, but that it will feel like a collection of diverse individuals coming together and will all be given a strategic say. Um, I know I harp on a lot about, you know, innovation and technology. I do think data is power. 
You know, I think that for a CMO, whether it's a woman or a man or whoever it might be, I think to come to the table and to say, this is what I did. This mm-hmm. is what my team did. This is how we actually drove business results. That is powerful. And I think more than ever, these are tools at our disposal that not only allow us to do our jobs better, but also help justify the work that we're doing. And I hope that I think most CMOs do feel this today. And I think it's actually really hard. I was having a conversation with a couple of CMOs the other day. And it's tough when the, the models are broken, right? This particular mm-hmm. crisis has sort of thrown all our marketing models into disarray, but it's learning learning opportunity. But typically that data is a way of justifying what we're doing. And I think does allow us to prove that we have real strategic importance to the organization. So I do think the combination of technology and data um, allows us to do a better job of that. But I also hope that we, you know, we, you know, industry-wide across financial services and beyond that we're focused on having, you know, more than just a single woman at the table or, you know, having greater diversity overall, because I think that will also help change the dialogue for the better, hopefully permanently. Yeah. Well, it is my sincere hope that your vision of of how you just laid that out will exactly happen. Let me uh, me wrap up our conversation. I like to always ask the guests that we have on the show this question, and I'll tie it into your, you know, your area of, of this integrated PR marketing field. If if there's a young person today, let's say there's a a young millennial or, or Gen Z, there's there's somebody who in the next two to three to five to whatever years is, you know, maybe going to go to college or or wants to kind of enter that PR marketing career track. What would your advice be to them relative to w- what they could be doing now that would help them achieve the best success of themselves? in in the PR marketing firm as it evolves? Yeah, I say lean in. You know, I I talk about, you know, even the the younger folks who are entering into our company. And what's what's interesting is I think new entrants into the field have a have a pretty interesting advantage in that they're already the organic consumers, if not practitioners, of new marketing channels. And I'll use like TikTok as an example. Okay. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm too old for TikTok, right? <laughs> but, you know, a lot of brands are trying to figure out how do I use TikTok? Do I use, do I use it? You know, is there a place for my brand on it? What is it? And if you think about, you know, a young professional entering into the workforce, they've already, they already know TikTok. They know right? TikTok. They know, they, right, exactly. They already know <laughs> infinite amounts more information about it than I do. And there is no B-school course, you know, that's already been taught for decades on how to use TikTok as a brand. So if you think about, you know, the younger millennials and the Gen Zs entering into the workforce, they're already naturally digital communicators and marketers because they do it every day, right? They're publishing stories. They're thinking about messages. They're thinking about how they portray their personal brands in digital mediums. That is a huge opportunity, I think, for these young professionals entering into the marketing communications field. So I say lean in. I think they bring a huge amount of information and creativity in ways that, unfortunately, as older marketers, just we just haven't grown up in that type of environment. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a great opportunity, and I think um, something that they should wield to their advantage. Awesome. Well, I hope every young person out there who might be listening to this will take Bina's advice. I say this all the time. It's somebody new comes into an organization. They don't know your forest. They've never seen your trees. And they are looking around and not just their knowledge of, of TikTok, but just in general, they're saying, hey, why, why do we do this? 
you know, if you think about it, I, I don't know if this is applicable, but certainly in a bank, there's if nothing, if not procedures, right? Here's a four-step procedure for this, a six-step procedure for that, 22-step procedure for the other thing. So somebody comes in and they, they're, you know, a young person, and given that here, here's this five-step uh, process, and they go, what is step four? Why do we have to do step four? I don't understand, right? <laughs> and so well, I tell people all the time, there's only two ways that you can handle that. You can say, yeah, you know, step four comes after step three, and it's before step five. This is how we do things right. here, right? And then and then pe- people get very frustrated. And, you know, uh, millennials are tagged with this jumping from job to job to job. Uh, okay, maybe they're just frustrated because a bunch of baby boomers uh, won't actually answer legitimate questions, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just like, I don't want to have a job here. But we can focus people on, hey, let me explain to you what step four is. See, we work in this regulated industry, and there's this rule that says we have to do it this way. So we have to do it that way. And they go, oh, okay, that, you know, just, you know, explain it to them. And then you might look at it and go, well, why do we need, why do we need to do step four? Maybe we don't, hey, do we still need to do, why are we doing step, right? So then you find out that there's this step four that's been in play for 12 years that was really super important 12 years ago when they put it in and now has no real need at all. And so, and so I want to figure out to help people harvest this innate curiosity and the lean in attitude towards these young folks uh, without somehow sounding like you're the, you know, old white guy who's always mad because the kid's ball falls in your yard, right? It's like somehow I've got, I I think I have wisdom as a, as a boomer that can help them, but I better be paying attention. I better be listening. I better be open to the world as they're describing it because that's the future. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and that's how we have to figure out how to merge all this together. Bina, any other comments or thoughts that you want to uh, leave us with today? No, I mean, this has been great. I really enjoyed our conversation. And, you know, the only thing I would say is, you know, I'm excited about, you know, where innovation is taking not only the financial services industry, but marketing communications. And, you know, I'm excited about the work that we do with our clients to, to do that at Vested. So, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing, maybe we can have this conversation again in 10, 15 years and see where see where everything landed. It's not going to take that long. We could do it in 18 months and it'll all be <laughs> exactly. different. Well, everyone, thank you. I want to uh, personally thank uh, Bina Kim, president, co-founder of Vested Communications for sharing her insights today on Innovation Growth Podcast. And whatever period of time it is, we look forward to having you back at some point in the future. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. Wow. I hope you found that interview as interesting as I did. Just amazing, amazing stuff that's going on that I think is really relevant for the IDG podcast community. Thanks again for investing your valuable time listening to the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. I covet your questions, comments, or critique. You can reach me at david at davidpeterson.com. I'm also on Facebook at DP Speaks and everywhere else on social media at DLP Speaks. I look forward to hearing from you and be sure to look for a new episode soon.